Good evening. Welcome to the uh, final session in our study of the book of Job. Job has been suffering for the past five weeks, and well, you have too, really. I mean, so we will wrap that up tonight. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for everyone here, and I pray that you will meet everyone at their point of need, whether that's grief or suffering or pain or illness, that you would give us the confidence to know that you see the end of this story. Father, I pray for the leaders of our country, all the leaders of our country, that you would turn their hearts to you and that we in this country might be a beacon of peace and hope in the world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's the number to text in your questions during class. We'd love to answer your questions, those of you watching us on the live stream or here in the, in the building. We are talking about the book of Job. Let me give you a very brief recap because I've kind of recapped it every week. But basically, Job is a man who lived approximately 1800 BC. So the things we're reading in this book happened in that era, that patriarchal period of time. Job is a God-fearing man. He's a righteous man. You and I know that. God says that. Satan comes before God. He makes a couple of accusations. You know, I've said that Job is every man, every woman. In other words, Satan's making the same accusations against you and me, and that is people only serve God if he blesses them with prosperity, or worst case, people only serve God if he protects them from illness, suffering, disease, and that if those things happen to us, we would turn on God and we would reject God. God says, I don't think so. I don't think that's why Job serves me. And so Satan takes his children, his possessions, all of his material goods, and then Satan inflicts him with, I would just call it like a cancer, uh, sores on his body. He thinks he's going to die. I mean, he's suffering physically, and he doesn't anticipate getting better. And so Job remains faithful. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall I accept good things from the Lord and not accept bad things? Am I a, quote, fair-weather Christian, if you will? And he says, no, I'm really not. I'm going to hang on to God. Well, as he begins to sit in this suffering, he begins to try to figure out, well, what's the meaning of this suffering? That's the problem. All of us, frankly, are willing to suffer if we understand what it's for. For example, I gave you the example of a soldier in battle. Think about World War II. All those young men that uh, we were on the D-Day beaches not long ago on a vacation, and it was very moving to think of all those young men, the ages of our sons, who gave their lives to free people from tyranny, never knowing that those young men that died never knew would it be successful or not. But they still had meaning. They knew they were doing the right thing but they had no idea how it was gonna turn out. Now we look back and say, wow, your sacrifice was worth it. They did not know that. So suffering happens, but meaning makes it worthwhile. Well, Job's struggling with that because he doesn't know what the meaning of it is. You and I struggle with that because often when we suffer, whether it's physical ailment or bankruptcy or severe emotional uh, relational problems, I mean, we do indeed have hard times in life, 
We don't necessarily know. Well, is this worth it? Will good come out of this? Just like them, we don't know. Well, that's where Job is. Now, Job is lucky enough to have three, actually four in the long run, friends. And his friends come to him and they say, well, Job, here's how the world works. The righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. It's basically karma. That's what we talked about is karma. In other words, if you do the right things, if you're a nice person, whatever that may mean, and believe me, human beings do not agree what being righteous means or what being a good person means. But leave that aside for a moment. If you're a good person, sooner or later, it will come around. And if you're a bad person, whatever that may mean, and and we do not agree on what that means, If you're a bad person, sooner or later, that comes around. In other words, justice wins out in the end. Great idea, completely untrue. I mean, experientially, you and I know that's not true, but it's a nice thing to hold on to, and that's what his friends are holding on to. Well, here's the problem. So if the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer, Job is suffering, therefore, Job is wicked, meaning Job must have sinned. And that's what his friends tell him. Job, just fess up, man. Just confess. Tell God what you did wrong. He'll kill you at least. That'd be better than this. Or maybe he'll even forgive you. And Job goes, but wait a minute. Here's the problem. I used to believe that too, but I didn't do anything wrong. You and I know that's true. We know that even God, from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book, even God says that's true. He didn't do anything wrong, which brings us to the problem, and that's why God kind of confronts it head on. What happens? Why? How do you make sense when bad things happen to people who don't appear to deserve it? So his friends can't accept that, but Job is left with a dilemma. Job's dilemma is, I didn't do anything wrong, and yet I'm suffering, so that, that obviously isn't true. But that leaves me with a problem. Either there's a problem with me, which I know there's not, or there's a problem with God because he must not be running the universe right. We've talked about before, and I really want you to think about this, that Job's issue is not that he's suffering so much as that he cannot see the end of the story. Only the author of the story can see the end. You really can't tell And Job, in the beginning, understands, I might be suffering for a purpose. Well, you and I know that he certainly is suffering for a purpose. For 3,800 years, billions of people have read this story of what happened to Job, and it has been a tremendous comfort when they were in Job's very situation. I mean, maybe not as bad as Job, but in a situation where we're like, wait a minute, I don't know why this is happening. Wow. Job was in this situation, what lessons can I learn? He doesn't know that, though. He doesn't realize, because he's not writing this story. God's writing this story, if you will. He doesn't realize that, oh, if you had told Job in the middle of this, Job, billions of people will profit from this. He might have said, oh, well, in that case, I don't like it, but I will do it. But he doesn't know that. And so Job is struggling with this idea of karma. And so he presents his case finally. In chapter 31, he says, look, I just need to talk to God because you guys, my friends, you guys are useless. 
but I have a problem and no one can seem to answer it. And so he says, even today, my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. If only I had his email address. Okay, wait, I added that. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And he makes this claim, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. So what Job is doing is he says, I really want to talk to God. And so finally, and here comes our lesson for today, God responds. Let me prepare you for this because you're not going to like God's response. God doesn't answer Job's question. Because Job's asking the question, why is this happening? God actually begins to ask Job several questions. And remember when I said to you that suffering makes our world shrink in around us? If you've ever been around someone who's suffering, this is no fault of theirs. It just shrinks our world. It seems like darkness closes in and you can only see your suffering and what's happening to you and you really lose perspective. That's not a bad thing, it's a natural thing. And so God's gonna start talking to Job and he's gonna ask him some questions and as he does, it's gonna puncture this little small world that Job has. So let's dive into that and see how does God answer. You should read chapters 38 to 42 of Job. I'm just gonna pull out a few excerpts, but it's beautiful poetry. So basically, the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across the universe? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for the sea and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, thus far you may come and no further. This is where your proud waves halt. So what is God doing here? First of all, God's going to reset the parameters of this discussion. What's basically happening is Job says, I'm suffering. I've got this idea that the righteous suffer, the wicked, or the righteous prosper, excuse me, and the wicked suffer. I'm suffering, but I'm righteous. Now answer me that riddle. And God says, not even interested in answering that riddle. Not even interested in this whole parameter. In fact, I want you to step back and I want to expand our discussion. There's a proverb that says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And what that basically means, and you've probably been in this situation. So you talk to somebody and you're trying to persuade them of something, but once they set the playing field, you realize this playing field is tipped so far this direction. There's no way we're ever going to get anywhere. In other words, you have framed this situation so narrowly that it cannot be answered within this parameter. That's what God's saying to Job. Job, your world has shrunk so small, 
First of all, you believe in something, this karma idea. Well, that's not true. Secondly, you also think that you must have sinned and you know you didn't, so there's a problem with me. He says, that's a false dichotomy. There are plenty of other options here. You just don't see them. So he begins to reset Job's perspective by asking him, do you understand enough to actually question me? In other words, can't, let's, why don't you look at the world the way I look at the world and maybe you'll see a difference. So he begins to say, do you even know how you got here? This is sort of like any of you who have teenagers have been in this exact situation. Along about 13, kids all of a sudden realize how the world should be run and how your household should be run. And they will tell you how your household should be run. And guess what? It's not the way you're running it. You're doing it wrong. It's sort of a Job and God situation. And they begin to say to you, you know, here's the way this ought to be run. And you realize if you want to argue with them, probably some of you have, and you realize pretty quickly, this is a waste of time. If you want to argue with them in their little world, you're going to get nowhere. In fact, you need to invite them into your world, which they will not that will not happen until they're in their 20s. So just suffer for 10 years. But in about 10 years, they will have a different perspective. Now you can have a conversation. Well, that's what's happening with God and Job. And so God is saying to him, you're kind of like a kid asking me and telling me how to run the universe. And the first thing I want to know is, do you even know how you got here? Do you even know how this universe got here? Well, Job goes, well, no, but what's your point? I still know how to run it really well, right? Well, that's starting to sound kind of silly, isn't it? But that's what God is doing. He's resetting the parameters of this discussion. His next question is this. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? This is beautiful, by the way. That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you understand all of this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you are already born. That just proves God can be sarcastic. You have lived so many years. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? So the first question was, do you understand how this happened? And secondly, do you have the power to do any of these things? Can you make the planets move in their motions? Can you discern the secrets and the power of the universe? Well, the answer is no. And again, this is like God talking. The best analogy is you talking to a kid. I remember one time uh, our kids, they would ride with us, and every now and then I'd go through an ATM machine, right? So I'd drive through the bank, 
put the card in, you know, punch in the numbers, and draw out some cash. So one time, it was getting near Christmas, and the kids were wanting some toy, and we said, we really can't afford that. So I'm sorry, but no, we can't afford it. And they said, yes, you can. You just go to that machine, and you put the card in, and it gives you money. Just go get some. Well, that's kind of God and Job. It's like, do you really understand how this works, or do you have a kind of a superficial understanding? And that's what God is saying. It's like, Job, this is a bigger issue than you realize. Do you have any idea how this whole thing works? Were you there at the beginning? No. And the, the implication is, then you also don't know how it ends. If you weren't there at the beginning of the book, you're really going to have a hard time understanding the last chapter of the book. So God is basically, he's not questioning him in a nasty way. In fact, later you're going to see he doesn't have any heartburn with Job. He says, Job, I understand that you wrestled with this. I understand you don't know why, and yet you kept coming back to me. He's going to commend Job. In fact, he's going to tell Job, you better pray for your friends because they did not speak true things about me. This whole karma thing they've got going is not the way the universe works. And so he's okay with Job, but he wants to set the parameters with Job. You begin to see how awesome God is. Sometimes, especially when we suffer, but sometimes when we get arrogant too, we just sort of bring God down like, hey, I just need to know where you live because we need to have a conversation. Equal to equal, man to man. And God goes, no, I don't think you understand. We're not having any equal to equal conversations here until you can tell me who measured the universe. In other words, he's really setting the parameters and he's saying, I'm sovereign, you're not. Now that's not the answer you wanna hear, is it? And you know why we don't wanna hear it? Because we want God to answer our question, because we're egotistical. Some would even say narcissistic. God, you need to answer me. I've got a case here, now give me a good answer. And God says, I don't owe you anything. Where were you when I created the universe? And so you get this sense, first of all, God establishes his sovereignty, his awesome nature. We in America, this is not true everywhere in the world, but we easily lose the idea of God's sovereignty. We talk so much about how God loves you, God will pursue you, God will chase you down, God will do whatever it takes to get you. It almost sounds like God is sort of like your servant. I mean, we inadvertently make it sound like, God wants me so badly. I'm taking offers from several companies. But God's, if his offer's good enough, I'm going with him. And God says, that isn't even slightly true. You're here, and I'm so far up here, you can't even see it. So it's not in a sense of meanness or in a sense of cruelty. It's just, hey, before we start this discussion, let's just remember who's God and who's not. And so that's what God is doing, is he's kind of setting that, uh, that uh, stage. So Job, and the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So he's basically saying, okay, Job, I'm going to pause here for a second. And if you have the answer to, okay, I'll tell you what, multiple choice, Job, any of the questions I've asked you, if you have the answer, this is your chance. Of course, Job has nothing to say. This also reminds me of something that we do. All of us have done it who've had kids who've played sports. And I've coached sports. I've had kids who played sports. I've been on both sides of this. 
So I had this team one time. We were good. They were a good soccer team. But we had a rule. Everybody gets pretty much equal playing time. I mean, in as much as you could. It was a team where we wanted everybody to play the same amount of time. Well, we were in the championship. So played all the good kids, you know, for the first half, and we're up. So we get into the second half. Well, I need to put in the bad kids, you know, the kids that are kicking daisies. And, you know, the other team starts scoring like crazy. So the parents come up and go, what are you doing? Put the good kids back in. We'll win this game. And I go, yeah, but they got parents over here who want to see their kids play. That was our agreement. Everybody gets to play. And so, long story short, we lose. And so I get some criticism, right? And that is, you should have done this differently. Well, if you've ever been in that situation, my kids should have got more playing time. You should have called a timeout during the last stretch. You should have done this. You should have done that. It, it kind of gets to the point where that's what Job is doing to God. And that's just what kids do, right? And what crazy parents do. And I've been one of those crazy parents, like, what are you thinking? Put my kid in. He's a star, whether he was or not. But the point is, we're kind of like that. You see human nature coming out, and you see God answering it. He says, you know what? If you actually know how to coach this whole universe better than I do, well, by all means, big boy, step up and tell me how to do it. And Job's like, well, now that you bring it up, maybe not. You know, I don't think I do. So why is God answering Job, his questions, with a question? Two reasons. Number one, he's asking Job questions not because he's mad at him, not because he's trying to humiliate him. He's trying to educate him. It's like before we can have this discussion, by the way, if you ever get down on your kid's level and decide, we're going to have an equal discussion, four-year-old to four-year-old, you're going to lose. I mean, you can't have an equal-to-equal -equal discussion, right? You just have to realize that there are things you know that your children don't know. Well, that's what God is saying. He's trying to educate him and say, listen, Job, let's expand your world a little bit and realize maybe there are more possibilities here than you realize. The other thing is answers, and that's why this book is not going to give you a nice little answer, because answers give data. Questions stimulate thinking. And I think faith comes out of thinking, not just out of dogma. And I think God here is saying to Job, think on these things, because the next time this happens to you, you will have a deeper faith because you've thought this through. Well, let me pause and say, what questions do we have at this point? How do you balance Job with statements about prosperity and doing good in the book of Proverbs? Good question. The book of Proverbs is making observations about life. And you'll see things in Proverbs that are actually opposites. I just quoted to you, uh, don't answer a fool in his folly. There's also a proverb that says, answer a fool in his folly, or they'll think you're a fool too. And so the point is, the book of Proverbs is not God saying, okay, here's how it all works. The book of Proverbs is telling, it's called wisdom literature. So you know my saying, let the Bible be what it wants to be, let it say what it wants to say. Proverbs wants to be wisdom literature. Wisdom in the Bible doesn't mean shrewdness. Like, if you do these things, you'll make more money. 
you do these things, you'll always win the game. That's not what wisdom means in the Bible. Wisdom means you do these things and you will be in good shape with God. And so God is saying, do the right thing and it will come around to you and it will, but not necessarily now. And you'll see that in a minute. The book of Job really makes that point at the end. So the book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. It says the way to live your life is to be honest. It never says, oh, by the way, you'll always do well. He does say that God will do justice, and those who do righteous will be rewarded, and those who do evil will be punished. But you and I both know it doesn't always happen in the short term. That's just not true. So the book of Proverbs is giving us the idea of what is wisdom, what does godly living look like? Good question. What's the difference between karma and the idea that we reap what we sow? Very good. The idea of, let's go to Galatians, you know, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a person sows, so shall they reap. Let me continue. If you sow to, this is how it continues, if you sow to your fleshly nature, sinful nature, um, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit of God, meaning sow the things, do the things that God wants you to invest in, you will reap eternal life. So the idea of sowing and reaping is a true statement. It simply isn't necessarily true in that, Terry, if you do the right thing, you'll get a promotion. Well, not necessarily. That guy over there just stabbed me in the back and lied about me. Wait, what's wrong? That's where Job is, right? Hey, I did the right thing, and look at me. I'm suffering. What God is saying is you will reap eternal life, and there is indeed a judgment Karma wants to situate that in a much smaller sphere. Well, you and I both know that's not true, and that's why most religions that believe in karma also believe in reincarnation, because you need several lifetimes to make this thing work out. And there's no guarantee that it's ever going to work out. In fact, it won't. It's not true. But yes, sowing and reaping eternal life versus corruption and eventual death is true. So there is a judgment. There is a a sorting. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus talked about judgment probably more than anything else. Think about the sheep and the goats, the weeping and gnashing for those in the outer darkness. He's talking always about separating those who follow God, those who sow to the fleshly nature, those who live to themselves. So great, great question. Well, let's move on. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit, this is my probably one of my favorite passages, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? I'll come back to that. Do you have an arm like God's, or can your voice thunder like his? In other words, do you actually powerful enough to do what's right? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all together in the dust. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then, Job, I myself will admit that your own right hand can save you. 
Okay, this is really interesting. Job talks about justice. We talk about justice. We usually use the word fairness. Now, if you've been around me very much, you realize I hate the idea of fairness because there's no such thing as fairness. Nobody in this world, the Al-Qaeda operative in Syria and you sitting here today, do trust me, you do not agree on what is fair. In fact, get any two people and you'll get three ideas of fairness, right? We do not agree on what is fair, but we want to complain the world's not fair and God, it's your fault. And God says, well, Job, why don't you tell me how you would do this better? Last week, I gave you a thought experiment. And the thought experiment was, just think about if you were God, you had the magic wand, you know, you were Harry Potter, whatever, and you could make the world the way you wanted. If you think about that very much, you'd realize, whoa, this is a lot harder than I thought. It turns out I'm not actually very fair. I actually am very forgiving to people like me, right? White, Anglo, Saxon, Americans, and I'm actually a little harder on them, whoever them is. We actually don't know how to run the universe. We don't know how to do justice. We approximate it, and you've heard me say this before, and I believe it. America is the most just nation in the world, and yet we would all agree we certainly fall short of being truly just in every circumstance. That's because we do not know how to actually be just. And so what God is basically saying to Job is, Job, you want to challenge me and say, I'm unjust so that you can justify yourself and say, look, I didn't do anything wrong. Must be something wrong with you. He says, fine, you tell me what justice looks like. Well, that's an unanswerable question. You and I don't know what real justice looks like. It's a good thing that we are not judging the world. Actually, it's a really good thing I'm not judging the world because I would have zapped several people on the Hefner Parkway today. I mean, it's like, boom, you're gone. Summary judgment, you're done, right? Well, that's not fair. It's not just, but that's what would have happened, right? Well, that's what would happen to all of us. And so God is challenging Job. I want you to step back for a second and see in God's response, because it's not a satisfactory response. I mean, you and I would like an answer, like, okay, just tell me the secret that makes sense of all this. And instead, he comes off with this whole, I'm God and you're not thing, right? Like, you do not understand enough to answer this question. Kind of like when your four-year-old asks you where babies come from. All of a sudden, the stork story starts to look pretty good, right? Because you can't actually explain that. Well, that's what God is doing here, right? But think about it. Job comes into this conversation, and so, do, and so do you and I, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, and we ask God this question, what does this mean? Help me understand the meaning of what is happening to me. And that's fine. God's, again, don't forget, God is not upset with Job. He's not mad at him at all. In fact, he approves of him because Job, even when he struggles, he always turned to God. But you and I want to know, what does this mean? Think about what God is asking. God's actually asking a totally different question. Here's what God is asking. Remember Satan when he said, hey, God, 
Job only serves you because you take care of him. He only serves you because you won't let anything really bad happen. And God says, I don't think so. I think God will serve me just out of pure trust, pure faith. I don't think Job needs anything from me to serve me. And Satan says, well, I don't agree. And God says, let's see. So what is God trying to find out? He's not trying to find out what does this mean. He's trying to find out if Job has faith. He wants to know, Job, do you trust me? Well, I have no problem trusting God as long as he explains everything to me. Well, that's dumb, isn't it? That's not faith, that's knowledge. In fact, I'm going to quote something for you from Romans 8 in a little bit that says, you know what, if you understand it all, you don't have faith, you have knowledge. What, God is, what Job is saying is, God, what does this mean? What God is saying, Job, do you trust me? They're actually asking two different questions, aren't they? And that's what you see happening in this passage. So then Job replies to the Lord, and he says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Well, that was me. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. All of a sudden, his perspective has changed. He goes, you know, you make a good point. If I'm going to be fair, I have to say, you're right. I do not know how this story started. I do not know how it's going to end. You actually know how this story started, and you actually know how this story is going to end. So fair point, Job says. He says, there were things too wonderful, too far out for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have really seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the NIV, and I do not like that translation, but it's not a big deal. The idea of despise myself, again, God's not mad at Job. Another way to translate that is, now I humble myself in dust and ashes. I realize you're God, I'm not. What you're asking me is to trust you, and I understand I cannot understand the full story. The Jewish rabbis, ancient times, I mean, I'm talking like 2,000 years ago, the Jewish rabbis, when they wrestled with the problem of why do bad things happen to people who don't seem to deserve them, right? I hate to use the word good people because in the Bible, there are no good people, but I don't want to quibble. So why do bad things happen to people that don't appear to deserve them? And here's what the Jewish rabbis said. I think this is very wise, very biblical. If you knew what God knows, and if you could see what God sees, then you would do what God does. If you knew what God knows, which Job doesn't, he admits, I definitely do not know what you know. If you could see what God sees, which he certainly cannot see the end of this story, then you would do what God does. And here's what they added, and I think this is so wise. They said, and God does not explain it to you because if you understood, you would agree and it would break your heart. If you understood, you would agree, and it would break your heart to carry the burden of human suffering. And I think that's really true. God is the only one that can see and can know, and Romans 8.28 can work in all circumstances for good. But if you and I knew that, and we had to say, yes, that's the right thing to do, it would break our heart. We cannot carry 
that burden. And God graciously does not explain everything to us. I think it's a very, very biblical idea. Well, at the end, let me tell you how this story ends. I For years and years, and I like mean I'm old, so like 20 years, I thought about this for like 20 years, and I hated it for 20 years. I thought, I do not like the way this story ends. It should end right there with Job saying, you're right, I'm wrong, you're God, I'm not. I will trust you even though I have no idea how this turns out. I'm like, yes, click, scene's over, movie's done, roll the credits. I like that ending. Job serves God for nothing. But look how it ends. This just drove me nuts. And the Lord restored... Okay, so in the meantime here, I left out a piece. So God says, Job, you I'm happy with. Your friends, on the other hand, you guys have some really goofed up theology here. And so Job, if you pray for them, I'll save them. Otherwise, I think I'm going to zap those guys. And Job goes, I'll pray for them. He goes, fine, they're good. And so then it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, except in kids, because if he gave him twice the number of kids, that would not be a blessing. Then came to him all his brothers, Job's brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So remember, in the beginning, he was influential, he had kids, he had status, he had money. He was the, quote, perfect Christian. He was devout and he was prosperous. At the end, it says, he blessed him in the latter days even more than in the former days. I used to really dislike this because the whole point is the idea of karma, the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. Read the New Testament. You will not find that anywhere. Somebody tell the apostle Paul about that, right? I mean, here's a guy who said, I was wrong. I'll trust you, Jesus. What do you want me to do? Well, I want you to go from city to city and preach the gospel. Tons of people are going to believe. Oh, by the way, they're going to beat the tar out of you every time you go into town. So pick yourself up. Oh, by the way, I have no medical plan for you. So go from town to town and just keep doing this. Oh, and you know what your retirement plan is? Nero will behead you in 68 AD. I mean, that's it. And Paul goes, awesome, I'm your man. I mean, read the, the letters of the Apostle Paul. I'm in jail and I'm rejoicing. You know what? I've never had the chance to witness to guards before. I mean, this guy's like, whoa, what are you thinking? That's the point of this. There, that idea is not in the Bible. And yet, he gets more back in the end. And there's a real opportunity to misunderstand this and says, no, never mind everybody, it really was true that the righteous prosper in this world and the wicked suffer in this world. That's not true. It wasn't true then. It still isn't true at the end of the story. So what is going on here? Okay, pause there. What questions do you have? With Job, we answer the problem of evil for Christians. What about non-believers and that question, um, non-believers who question God because of evil? 
Yeah, don't get me started on this. So here's the question. This is a really good question. Suppose you do not have a Christian worldview. You do not believe in Jesus Christ, or you kind of believe in God, but you're mad at God because bad things happen to good people. Happens all the time. Nothing wrong with that. That is probably, yeah, it's probably the most frequently asked question to me anyway. This is just personal from people who are struggling with God, don't believe or believe, but aren't really devoted followers of Christ. That, that's their biggest question, fair question. I don't have any problem with that. So the book of Job answers that, but it presupposes that there's a God to make sense of this world. If you don't think there's a God to make sense of this world, honestly, the, what's called the theodicy problem, the problem of evil, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do people in you know, Africa cut off the arms of every child in a village and move on? Why do Al-Qaeda terrorize villages? I mean, why do people do evil things? If there's a God, surely this can't happen. If you don't believe in God, you have a major unsolvable problem. If you trust God, this problem is solvable. I'll show you in just a minute how it's solvable because you believe in eternity. You believe in more than this life. If you are a secular humanist, which most of the people you know effectively are, you don't think, first of all, you think you got here by accident. You think you're a Darwinist, right? You're a product of random mutations or various functions like that that are basically random and survival of the fittest. You don't even know what good and evil is. Seriously, survival of the fittest, that means whoever's the strongest, Remember I told you that uh, Thucydides quoted this verse from ancient Greek uh, wars. He said, this is the Athenians speaking to some people they just conquered. And they said, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. That is the world of secular humanism. Are you going to tell me the Athenians were wrong in destroying and killing every male in this town? Why? How, how do you know that? In other words, you have no way to answer the problem of evil. It is survival of the fittest, so the strong. Now, nobody likes that. Everybody wants to say, but wait a minute, Terry, I'm a secular humanist, and I believe people should be nice to each other. Yeah, I know, and you believe a lot of other fairy tales too, because it's not consistent with what you believe. In other words, what you believe is you're not unique, and you need to get what you can get in this world and get out. It is really hard to have any kind of serious consistent, logically consistent morality. So my answer to this, you can see it kind of touches a nerve with me. Man, people who don't believe in God have no answer to that problem. It's sort of like, I'm gonna complain at God because he won't make the world right. And God goes, fine, you make it right. And you go, oh, well, I'm in real trouble because all I believe in is survival of the fittest. In other words, I can't even tell you what evil is. You know what good is to a Darwinist? Whatever perpetuates your line. In which case, killing a few other people is not really evil. It's really difficult for your secular humanist friends. I know they want to pretend that they have morals, but if you just bear this down to bedrock, they have no idea how to solve the problem of evil. With God, you actually can solve the problem of evil because there is a standard of justice, and it's not human justice. So what I came to believe about this passage, I want you to think in an eschatological sense. What I mean by that, eschatology means end times. 
God presupposes this. God says, this is God's truth claim. You may believe it, you may not believe it, but this is what God believes. He says, you're here for 70, 80, 90, 100, however many years your HMO will keep paying uh, for you, and then you die and you live forever, and you will be judged, and you will be with me forever, or you will get what you desire forever, and we call that hell, right? Hell is kind of like a never-ending neighborhood association meeting. Think of it that way. Anybody ever been to a neighborhood association meeting? Think about that for eternity. Okay, that's hell. And you're all going, okay, I'm motivated. I'm following Christ. Absolutely. So he's, that's really what God thinks. And so what God is saying here is, it's not so much that Job got something now. It's saying to you and me, this story's written for you and me. This happened to Job for us, not to, about Job. It says, you have no idea how I can set things right. This is the way to think about uh, heaven. This is a way to think about eternity. Listen to this passage. Now, we're in the New Testament. I consider, Paul says, and this is the guy that got beat up everywhere he goes, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation, all the universe waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The children of God are those who trust in Jesus Christ. Not everybody is a child of God. According to the Bible, those who trust in Jesus Christ have been adopted into the family. Read the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, and you've been adopted into the family and you're heirs with Christ. They're waiting to see who are these glorious saints that trust in Jesus Christ. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who suggested it. In other words, all of creation has fallen. It's not just humanity. There were, here's, here's my proof, there were no mosquitoes in the Garden of Eden. They're here now, ergo, this is a fallen world. Okay? So what the Bible says is not just humanity fell, the whole creation became corrupted, if you will. Sin corrupts everything. It says creation was subjected to frustration, corruption, by the will of the one who subjected it, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, think entropy, goes away, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth right up to now. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, we know what our future is. We have the Holy Spirit. Think Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment for what God will do in eternity with you. That This is a down payment that says, you will live with me in eternity. He says, even we ourselves, we have the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is he saying? We struggle and suffer in this life too. We know where we're going, but even now we groan and we struggle, yearning for the day when we are free from suffering. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? So here's the interesting thing. You're God, and you want to save certain people. You want to save everybody, but you want to give people an offer and make it possible for them to shed their sins, shed their rebellion. Think amnesty. 
you know, think 30 million illegal immigrants and all of a sudden you've got amnesty, right? I mean, this is what it is. That's what Jesus did for us. He said, I covered your debt. Would you like to sign on? Would you like to join the family and go with us? That's what basically happened in the gospel. And he says, that's our hope. If you were God and you wanted to do that, you know what I would do? I'd just zap a little tattoo on everybody that believed. Boom, right on the forehead. That's just my personal opinion. I'd do one of those Mike Tyson kind of you know, things right there where everybody could see, yep, that's a Christian. You're with God. You're going to heaven. But he doesn't. He says, how do you save? You're saved by grace. That's true. It's only through God that we can be saved. We can't do it ourselves through faith. And I want to use the word trust instead of faith. Same Greek word. But trust means really more what that text is talking about. So you're saved by God's grace because of your trust in Christ. Well, you don't need trust in something that you know. In other words, you might trust that the Thunder are going to win the NBA title. Okay, you'd be wrong. But, I mean, you might trust in that, right? But you don't know that, do you? You hope that. You believe that. God says, you need to trust me because you do not know the end of the story. Remember Job? Let's go back to Job. Job says, tell me what's going on. God says, hey, you're a nice little four-year-old. I'm sorry, I cannot tell you. You weren't here at the beginning. You're not here at the end, but you trust me. How many times, parents, have you said that to your kids? How many times have you lied? No, seriously, but God is saying, trust me. I can work in all things for good. I can make everything right. I can take all the things that you suffered and make them, as hard as this is to believe, not even worth comparing to what you will have. That's what the ending of the book of Job is about. It's not about Job gets his kids back, Job gets his stuff back, he gets his truck back, he gets his shotgun back. I mean, he gets his hound dog back. It's not that. That's what you get when you play, by the way, a country music song backwards. You get your truck back, get your wife back, get your dog back. Anyway, whatever. My point is, you basically, he's not saying, oh, Job got all this stuff. He's saying, Job, if you trust me, I can make everything right. I can make your suffering not worth comparing. Does that make sense? That's God's answer. And it's not a satisfactory answer. I'd rather have a tweet God, could you just tweet, you know, like Donald does every morning? You know, here's the answer to the problem of suffering. He says, not really, can't really tell you that. You trust me. I wrote the first chapter, I'll write the last chapter, and it will be more than you can possibly imagine. Think Ephesians 3.20. To the God who is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. Here's the really sad part. If God let you ask for what you wanted... Think about that. You're like, I like in this. This is like a genie in a bottle thing. God, you just let me ask for what I want? Seriously, you'll give me anything I want? And God is saying, yeah, I would, except whatever you ask for, whatever you imagine, however good it is, it will be nothing compared to what I have planned for you. And here's what God says. Do you believe that? Do you trust me? That's the answer to the problem of suffering. That's the Christian answer to the problem of suffering. You don't wrap it up with a nice bow and go, oh, it all makes sense and here's the secret. No, it never makes sense in the moment. It only makes sense in light of trust, faith in God, and his ability 
to set everything right. Does that make sense? That's the story of Job. That's why this happened to Job, is so that you and I can understand it. The truth is, God's answers are not always what we want to hear, but they are always what God wants to say. God's answers are not what I want to hear. In fact, God's timetable is never okay with me. God, as far as I'm concerned, he's on a performance improvement plan. It's like, you are slow in answering every prayer I ask you. God's answers aren't always what I want to hear, but they are always what he wants to say, and he is trustworthy. The other thing I've noticed, if we'll be honest, and if Job will be honest, God's answers usually expose our self-centeredness. Now, I told you, I don't fault Job for letting his world shrink to kind of a self-centered universe in his suffering. I don't fault you or me for that, and neither does God. He understands that suffering is difficult. God understands personally that suffering is difficult. Think about Jesus Christ, God with us, God enduring suffering for us, unjustly for us. God understands our suffering. He does not fault us for that. But his answers usually pierce that little world of self-centeredness that we live in. Kind of a, another way to say that is our suffering, honestly, if you think about this, just step back now. Here we are, 2019, studying about this guy Job who lived 3,800 years ago. You and I don't think this story is about Job. You and I realize, oh, this isn't about Job. This is about the billions of people who have learned what God is like through Job's suffering. The same is true for you and me. When I suffer, I always want to know, God, what are you upset with me about? And a lot of times, I think God's answer is, think what his answer to Paul was. Paul he says, Paul, you're gonna, by the way, you're going to suffer everywhere you go. Paul could have said, hey, what's your problem with me? And God says, I don't have any problem with you. That's just what I need you to do, son. And I think that's what God answers us. Sometimes we go, God, what are you doing to me? He goes, oh, this isn't about you. Did I not mention to you, you and I are working together for something else. That's the way God looks at our suffering. And to the extent that we can look at our suffering that way, maybe at the end of the story, we can be like Job and we say, you know what, what does it take? Because here's what Satan says. You, you need to know what's going on here. You need to know why God's upset with you or you won't serve God. And at the end of the day, Job said, I'll serve God and I don't have any idea why this is happening to me. In fact, I'll serve God for nothing. I will serve God for nothing. I'll serve God when I'm sitting on the ash heap and scraping my sores and I'm still with you because nobody else has the answer. I'm mad at you and I don't understand what's going on, but I'm with you. I'm not turning my back on you. Nowhere in this does Job turn his back on God. The question that you and I face every time we get into difficulties is, what does it take for us to serve God? And I pray that our answer is the same. It doesn't take anything. I'll serve you for nothing. That's what the Apostle Paul did, gave up everything he had. That's why, I believe, that's why he walked a hard road. Not about him, it's about you and me, and go, well, look what he went through. Look how God blessed that. Look how God used that. And yet Paul had a very, very difficult life. Well, why am I not the same? In other words, we can identify with Job. We can identify with the Apostle Paul. And at the end of the day, I pray that we would say, God, I don't care what you do. You give me what you desire, and I will serve you no matter what. That's the message of the book of Job. It may not be what we want to hear, but that's what God is asking. 
When we're suffering, we ask, why is this happening? And God asks, do you trust me? That's the answer to this story. Well, our next series is about the early church and the first disciples. It kind of carries this on a little bit because they didn't have an easy road to go. But the next four lessons, we're going to talk about the early Christians. How did they understand what it meant to follow Christ? How did they deal with their sufferings, like the Apostle Paul, like the persecution that they had? I mean, how did they deal with that? They were literally in a Job kind of situation. Let's keep exploring this idea of what it looks like to walk out our faith in modern days by looking back at what it meant to walk out your faith in ancient times. I really appreciate you guys being attentive through all this, and my, my hope is not that you walk away, and I don't think you'll walk away going, oh, I should have seen that all the time. That's the answer to the problem of suffering. I hope you go away thinking about it, like I see what was going on. I see the world from God's point of view, and I pray that that will power us through whatever difficulties come to us. God bless you guys.